I have been uh, generally preaching on the gospel lessons during Lent, but our lectionary lesson today from Isaiah 55, I'm going to uh, I'm going to uh, focus on. It's a powerful passage. Uh, just to remind you, Isaiah 40 through 55 is a uh, part of Isaiah that belongs to the time of right before the exiles came back to Jerusalem. So this is right around the time the Persians conquered the Babylonians. The people have been exiled for nearly 60 years. And so it is this call to go back to the, to the promised land. Though we get a sense not too many people really want to go back because they've settled in Babylon. Uh, they've been there for almost two, three generations. They've made a life for themselves. So the preacher of Isaiah 40 through 55 is convincing the people it's time to go back home. Um, I think I've mentioned this before, but Isaiah 40 through 55 is the most frequently quoted section of the Old Testament in the New Testament. So it's a very important kind of bridge for those of us who uh, are um, Christians as well as people who are folks of the book. So both the Old and New Testament kind of brings them together. It's very important that way. Uh, I'm also going to I'm going to be reading from the New RSV. The first word, and I just want to give you, the first word's hard to translate, so some translations have it low. It's really the Hebrew word oi, oi, all right? So it's usually an exclamation of anguish, but it, it's, um, it's trying to get everybody's attention. Hey, hey you, hey everybody. So I'm not going to say hey everybody, but that's, it's, it's, that's what it kind of means, okay? So this is the final chapter of this prophet's convincing the people that God has called them to go home. So listen to the word of God. Ho, everyone who thirst, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I make him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know. And nations that do not know you shall run to you because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteousness their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts that we may encounter you, the living word, through your word proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's been almost maybe 25 years ago, more or less. Um, I was living in South Jersey, uh, and some friends of mine who I'd worked with, uh, some members of the church I worked with when I was in Texas, wanted me to come back, and they wanted to do this men's hike retreat. So they wanted me to come back 
and more or less just be with him. I was close to these guys. It was a very you know, meaningful ministry, and these men were not only members of my church, but they were friends. So they decided we were going to hike in the Pecos Wilderness of the Rocky Mountains in New Mexico, which sounds like a great idea to me. I'd never been there. Uh, there's something about Texans in the Pecos River, so it was almost a mystical journey for them to go to the headwaters of the Pecos Wilderness. So I was living in South Jersey, which, just to give you a perspective, that's about 20 feet above sea level, all right? <laughs> I flew to Midland, Texas, which is at 3,000 feet, and then the next day we drove to Santa Fe, which maybe is roughly 7,000 feet. Okay. The next day we went up into the mountains. Um, we hiked in a base camp around, uh, we started around 9,000 feet, and the goal we were going to we were going to go to this peak that roughly looked like to be 12,000 feet. Okay. The day before, I was at 20 feet above sea level. And we were going to hike with backpacks up and down ridges in the Rocky Mountains. I was really excited about it until I started realizing that I was probably going to die in those mountains walking up and down those <laughs> I couldn't breathe. And we were moving and, and uh, you know, they said, we've been training for this. What did you do, Bill? I go, well, I, I run around chasing four kids. I'm working with a troubled church and I've mastered the fourth century. Uh, that was what I was doing at that point. So I wasn't quite uh, in mountaineering training, though we weren't doing mountaineering, we were hiking. And they had, neither of them had ever done it. So they're looking at a map and they said, that's our destination. I forget what its name was. So we're going up and down, right? And I'm just trying to, to not die. And uh, we finally reached what we thought was our peak. And when we got up there, we realized that where we were going was over there. What we had been looking for was a false peak. What we've been looking at was a false peak. Now, I knew theoretically what a false peak was, okay? But that day, I experienced it in all of its tragic and horribleness. Because <laughs> I was so ready to be done, and we had another three hours or so of hiking. You know, uh, now that's, I wasn't really at risk there, per se. The most dangerous thing that could have happened to me was a grizzly bear would have gotten me. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is, sometimes when people are doing, you know, like in the Himalayas, or really doing serious mountain climbing, particularly when there wasn't as much uh, mapping as there is now, climbers who, was, who were going to one summit and hit a false peak, that was always a very dangerous, dangerous time for them. Uh, because of their failed expectations. Um, now, the reason that we thought we were going to the right place is because we didn't have the right perspective, right? If you're sitting on the ground looking up, right, you have one particular angle, but the truth of the matter is that if we had had a better map, or we knew how to read the map we had, or we were from an aerial view, we would have realized that we were not heading to the right place. One of the things that is true about the Christian faith, and this is rooted in the Judeo-Christian faith as well, this is one of our creeds. As a matter of fact, this was a very important part even of John Calvin's doctrine, uh, the intellectual father of our tradition, is that there's a hiddenness to God. 
Tomas Halik says this. It is clear that God's hiddenness is the first word, word whereby God speaks, or more precisely, is silent. So it's not surprising that many are not patient enough to wait for his next word. Okay. The idea that God's ways are higher than our ways, that God's ways are ineffable, is a central part of who we believe God is. Yet that doesn't make it any easier. And this passage is really to be a word of comfort. It's, it's really a reality check. It's a call for them and for us to try to see things not from our perspective, but from God's perspective. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? I watched um, two of my grandchildren on uh, Friday night, and they asked me to read them a book, or I told them I'd read them a book. They were all excited. And they picked the giving tree, which, you know, some, you, one of the great things about being a grandparent is you get to go around again, right? And you get to read these great books, okay? And probably most of you are familiar with The Giving Tree, Shel Silverstein's uh, book. Matter of fact, I, it's been banned by certain libraries, right? I, it's a funny thing. So anything that's banned, I always want to read it even that much more. And, uh, and uh, my kids, my grandkids love this book. And if you remember, it's about a little boy who has a tree. He loves this tree. And he plays all day in the tree, and he climbs it, and he hides it. He, he just lays in the shade for a nap. So as a young boy, this tree is just the center of his life. But you remember the story, he gets older, and he needs money. So the tree offers him her apples. So he takes the apples, and he sells them. Then the boy comes back as a man. He wants a house. And so the tree gives him, gives, her, gives him all her limbs, and he builds a house from it. Then he comes back. I guess he's kind of a middle-aged guy, and uh, he's restless. He's unhappy. He needs something to make his life more full. So he wants a boat so he can go and travel. So the tree gives its very self to him. He cuts down the tree and turns her, um, her into a, a boat. He comes back as an old man. And the tree is just a stump. And the tree says, I have nothing to give you. And the old man says, all I need is a place to sit and rest. I'm very, very tired. And so the book ends with the tree happy that the boy has come home and is resting on the stump. Now, there are multiple ways of interpreting this story, but one of the punchline is, you know, he might have been happier if he just stayed with the tree as a tree, right? <laughs> All the things of the world, all the task of what we consider the essential task of life didn't really make him happy. What it did was it made him sacrifice the thing that did make him happy. You know, this idea of come and eat and come and, and drink of things that you do not buy, it, it could really well be the voice of wisdom calling. It could be God calling saying, listen, why are you so set on staying here in Babylon. This isn't where you belong. Yes, you've built a life here, but life is more than what you've planned. Come back. Come do the exodus once again. Come let me be your God once again. And it's interesting. 
this is the only part of Isaiah 40 through 66 where David is mentioned. He's not mentioned anywhere else. And the implication here is the promises I made to David, I'm now making to all of you. I will always be with you. Come. Don't settle for less in life. C.S. Lewis once, one time said, the problem with modern humans is not that we want too much. It's that we settle for so less. And so God invites them to come back to the desert. I was in Jerusalem studying a number of years ago, and I got food poisoning. And, um, and so I had to go see a doctor. Wonderful, wonderful medical service. But I'm not very, I couldn't walk, so I took the cab. And I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in very good shape. And so I, I, I come out of the doctor's office, and this cab pulls up, and this giant man, and, and, and maybe he wasn't so big, but he was just larger than life. He goes, brother, what's wrong with you? You do not look good. I said, I'm sick. He goes, ah, oh, you should not be sick of my country. And then he's, he's, um, he turned out he was from Yemen. And he looked like a 65-year-old hippie. He did, he did. He was, he, and he said, why are you here? I told him I was here studying. He goes, I will tell you everything you need to know during my cab ride. And I, can't, I have to translate it. Or I, have to, I have to edit what he, everything he said. But he started going off on the chief rabbinate of Israel. Without getting into the whole story, it was probably one of the great mistakes in the founding of Israel but as a way to placate the ultra-Orthodox, they put the religious life in charge of the ultra-conservative. So Israel is basically a secular country, but these very conservative, kind of almost, we'd call them fundamentalist rabbis, have a lot of power over things like marriage and life and what you're supposed to, and what's the proper ways to worship. And so my Yemeni uh, Jewish cab driver uh, says, they don't know what they're talking about. You were Christian? Jesus was a hippie. Abraham was a hippie. They just walked around, long hair, had sandals, had a good time. He goes, do you want to know what God wants? He says, drink good wine. Be kind to others. Make love to your wife. Say your prayers. There. You don't have to study anymore. That's everything. <laughs> but you know, um, there's something that he was pretty right about. Life is a gift. It's not something you can tell other people to do that God's life to us is a gift and we, we receive that gift and that's part of what God is trying to say here you're, you're building your life and you're using all your energy in one direction come home to me that's what you really need trust me for mercy seek the Lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteousness, their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You know, one of the things we hear a lot of talk about nowadays is the need to be more gracious, right? Uh, we're not gracious enough to each other. You'll hear things like, our politics need more grace in them. Um, sometimes you'll hear in the midst of church conflicts, uh, whether they be on the national level or local level. We need to be more gracious to each other. Okay, And we all kind of know what that means, right? But when we use the word grace that way, I think we misuse it. 
For instance, we should be more kind to one another. We should be more civil with one another. But grace is not some sort of commodity that you can pull out of the air. It's not something you can buy, like in the medicine cabinet, and say, here, take some grace. It's not something you can get put, put people in a room together and teach them how to be graceful. That's a misuse of the term. Grace is not a state. Grace is not a function. Grace is a gift from a person. Grace is something that only, genuine grace, is only something that comes from God. And even when we talk, when I, if, you, if, if you listen sometimes when I'm giving the, the assurance of pardon <laughs> after our prayer of forgiveness, our ability to forgive one another, to be gracious to one another, is not something that you do. You become a vessel that the grace of God can flow through you to other people. The invitation here is that you not only know, not, do not know what's good for you, or what's best for you, it says at the beginning, but you need to come and learn mercy from me as well. Your perspective on your life isn't quite right. Okay, It doesn't matter really what you build here. It's what you allow me to build in here. And you need to come back home to me so you can receive again the free grace of God that only God can give. He says, seek the one who is near. Even though we cannot see God. And though he is holy, alone can he pardon. And he wants to pardon all. So this is a beautiful invitation. To stop not only trying to build things for your life, but stop trying to earn your own salvation here. Stop trying to make things right that you don't even know why they're wrong. I agree, our, our country needs to be kinder. Our churches can always be more civil with one another. But only God can give grace. And we always need that. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Paul Davies is a quantum physicist who's written numerous books about how the new physics kind of opens up an opportunity for people of faith to talk. Um, the closed physics of modernity kind of worked without God, right? That's a great enlightenment. We've gotten to the point where we don't really need God to explain the universe. That's kind of was Darwin um, and Freud taken out of context, if you would. We can explain what human beings are without God. We can explain all of existence without God. Well, quantum physics has kind of raised the question again from a scientific perspective that that might not be the case. Uh, Paul Davis says, scientists are slowly waking up to an inconvenient truth. The view universe looks suspiciously like a fix. Fred Hoyle, the distinguished cosmologist, once said, it's as if a super intellect 
has monkeyed with physics. <laughs> All right. Well, as Christians, we may call that a little something different than a super intellect. And part of it, again, I'm not a physicist, but it's, 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 it was explained to me like this. Okay, For the universe to be exactly, for it to work, for there to be life, or the potential of life, there are about 30 different things, different broad areas that need to happen. And if you, and if you can almost imagine, uh, you're, at the, you're at the controls at the Big Bang, okay? And there's a control board with 30 different things, with knobs, okay? These are complicated knobs. You have to get each knob exactly right at the right time for what we have now here on this third planet from the sun to exist. So even if you got the neutrons a little heavier than the protons, anyway, you get what I'm saying. Okay, one knob's off a little bit, none of it works. If we get it differently, no protons, no atomic nucleus, no atoms. Like baby bears porridge in the story of Goldilocks, the universe seems to be just right for life. So that's just a scientific perspective at the immensity of what had to happen for there to be life here on this planet. As complicated as quantum physics is, Understanding life, I think, is even a greater mystery. There might be a few people in the world who understand the intricacies of what I just said there. But there's no one in the world who can totally explain why things happen the way they do. And while our faith in God certainly is a source of comfort, you know, it creates problems that atheists don't have. Okay? I was talking to an atheist the other day, and there is no purpose to life. There is no ultimate meaning. There's nothing beyond this. Okay. I'm not saying that's satisfying, but it's not as complicated, right? Because we believe there's a purpose to life. We believe we are not accidents. We believe the universe was created out of love by one who is love, whose love is our destiny. But there are days, perhaps years, maybe even centuries, where from a certain vantage point, it's hard to see it. Many in the exile who were listening to the prophet Isaiah, they certainly didn't see it. And my suspicion is that there are days many of us don't see it either. There are many false peaks in this world and in our faith. There are many days we can't see anything due to the fog of suffering or fatigue or for pain or for the tears. Faith, as Thomas Halleck has observed in the Bible, surely testifies, is a penultimate patience with God. It's trusting that his ways are not our ways, but he still loves us and wants what's best for us and has our best interest in mind. Rich Mullins was a Christian artist. He was an interesting guy, a very tortured soul. Uh, died tragically in a, in a Jeep accident. Um, suffered from depression and many things in his life, but he 
but from his suffering came some beautiful art. He, he also lived among the poor. He, he really practiced what he preached. And one of the last songs he ever wrote, matter of fact, he didn't live to record it. The only recording we have of his voice is on a cassette tape singing this song. Um, it's called Hard to Get. You can listen to it. I encourage you to listen to it. But I just want to read part of it here to you in conclusion. You who live in heaven, hear the prayers of those of us who live on earth, who are afraid of being left by those we love, and who get hardened by the hurt. Do you remember when you lived down here where we all scraped to find the faith to ask for daily bread? Did you forget about us after you had flown away? Well, I memorized every word you said. Still, I'm so scared. I'm holding my breath while you're up there just playing hard to get. And then the last verse. Is if you who live in eternity hear the prayers of those of us who live in time, we can't see what's ahead and we cannot get free of what we left behind. I'm reeling from these voices that keep screaming in my ears, all the words of shame and doubt, blame and regret. I can't see how you're leading me unless you've led me here, where I'm lost enough to let myself be led. And so you've been here all along, I guess. It's just your ways, and you are just playing hard to get. I'm lost enough to let myself be led, and you've been here all along. I guess. Ultimately, it's a matter of trust. Trusting in the one who loves us, but whose ways are so much higher than ours. And there are some days that's harder than others. But faith is trusting in the one who loves us. And that someday... We'll get beyond the false peaks of this world and we shall see face to face. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.